chapter 13, verse 1, just one verse. And uh, you may think, how do you get one whole sermon out of one verse? Well, we will also preach this verse next week. That way we can cover the verse. All right, John 13 and verse 1. Uh, Just to set the stage very quickly, we're only about 24 hours ahead of Jesus being nailed to a tree. It may take us two years to get there, but at least know that that's where we're at. It's not far from this spot to him being nailed to a tree. So these things happen very quickly. And the text uh, reads this way, Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he should cross over out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Three points, they're easy. He loved, he loved them, and he loved them to the end. That is the layout of the message. Now, just for introductory sake, to just kind of set the stage, the entire message is about Jesus' love being that which will be accomplished and completed in his own people. Now, if there's anything that I've learned in humanity as I've lived a short span of time on earth, It is that finishing is next to impossible for humanity. People start exercising. People start dieting. They start morning devotions. They start Bible reading plans. They start a book study at the church. They start preaching. They start evangelizing. And they start serving but very few ever finish the task that they put their hand to. Men grab a hold of the plow, and before they get to the end of the row, they look back. But not only do they look back, they go back. New Year's resolutions, verbal commitments or vows, promises made by the thousands, has produced a world of lies in which no one is believed. We live in a world where a boy cries wolf and there is no wolf. When someone actually tells the truth, he is not believed. My friend Paul Merrill was a police officer for a short period of time and just in a short period of time as a police officer, he said this. He said, every single person that I pull over or confront, they lie to me. He said, if one person was to ever tell me the truth, I wouldn't believe them anyways, because everybody is telling a lie. However, with that introduction, we come to Jesus. We find a much different reality with this one. Whatever Jesus says, He does. Whatever it is, He completes. In the person of Christ, we find The purity of speech. Man, the numbers of people throughout life, your life, my life, our lives, that have told us they love us. They said, oh, we love the church. Those type of phrases. What did their words mean? Nothing. Most of them have departed your life or relationship or departed from the church. Good intentions 
leave an empty place in our hearts that can only be filled by someone who accomplishes what they say. So today, it fills my heart with joy to look unto Jesus. He loves me. He loves you. It's the truth. He loves his church, and he will love her to the end. B.B. McKinney said it in his song. His song was, Have Faith in God. And he said this line, He, being reference to the Lord, He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. He's the only one who's going to do what He says. Let's be very clear. You can't even trust your spouse. You can't even trust your kids. You can't trust your pastor, the deacons, or nobody in the sense of them always doing what they say they will do. Men fail. Men come up short. Men give verbal things and say, I vow to do this, and they can't even make it to the end of the week. It's just the humanity we live in. It's not excusable. It's just reality. But when we come to Christ, and He says, whatever He says, it's true to the very end. You can count on it. The thesis for my sermon today is Jesus' love finishes the commitment. Point number one, Jesus loved. We can wrestle with the definition as long as you would like to, but we know from our text, if you take John 13, 1, the main verb is in the last line. In the last line it says, He loved. He loved. Jesus loved to practice, to express love, But here, in a lexical definition, is what we need to know. Love means to prove one's love. I can't venture here alone because we'd stay here all day, which is fine with me, but maybe not fine with you. But if I venture back a couple of chapters to Mary in John chapter 12, and I hang out with Mary there for a minute, I'm fascinated by this reality about her. She never speaks. She never says a word. But if you deal with that text, you come away with a woman who gives a year's wages away in the value of a costly perfume, and she shatters it on the head and feet of Jesus and wipes it with her tears and and with her hair, and she takes all of that and pours it out with no chance of return. She just pours out in action. This is love. She proved her love without talking. Now, not to get grammatically crazy here, but when you have the word love, and it has a direct object, and our text definitely has a direct object, it's them. He loved them. When you have that kind of scenario in the Greek grammar, to take pleasure in the thing, he loved them. What what is he saying? He took pleasure. Jesus took pleasure in them. He he prized it, he prized them above other things. Here in this text, Jesus prizes the disciples above everything else. He is unwilling to abandon them. He's unwilling to do without them. He will do whatever it takes to secure them. Because he loves them. Took pleasure in them, prized them. What a love is found here for Jesus and these disciples. When it came to love, Jesus did what was necessary 
to fulfill the biblical definition of love, even if it meant washing their feet. The king of glory bowed down with a towel and washed their feet. It ought to be at least a bit humbling in our self-righteous Americanism where we think we're somebody and we've become too good to serve people that are not as good as us. But Jesus did. He also said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you. You love one another. How should we love one another? Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You say, what does that look like? It looks like the king on his knees with a towel washing somebody's feet. That's what it looks like. You say, isn't that the servant's job? Exactly. And you find the king being the servant to those who are unworthy to be served. Jesus loved. In just 24 short hours, he will be nailed to a tree. But yet, in the deepest and most difficult hour of his day, he's only thinking about others. Everything, look, in just a matter of time, I'm going to be nailed to a tree. They're going to spit in my face. They're going to beat me. They're going to put a towel or deal over my head. And they're going to say, prophesy. And they're going to mock me. And all that is about to happen to me. You and I are saying, woe is me. Pity me. Look at me. Somebody have mercy on me. Somebody help me. Somebody feel sorry for me. Jesus in this circumstance is saying, I love you. 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 He loved at the deepest, most difficult hour he He loved. Always, when you press him, it's just what comes out. When when we get pressed, what's in your heart comes out. What, What comes out of here is what's in there. And what came out of Christ at this hour was love. It's always love. Willing to give his own life to redeem your depraved heart. Jesus loved. Knowledge will mess you up and make you a cynic and a pessimist. Ask me, I am one. Jesus' perfect knowledge did not alter his love. Look, I, as I preach, whether the sermon's any good or not, I don't know. I'm standing in amazement of one that's not like me. I'm just being rebuked by as I look at Christ saying, How can any man love like Christ loved? Think about human nature. Jesus knows what's about to happen. He's looking at these guys knowing that every one of them are going to desert him and run away. And he loved. What, what type of attitude do you have when you know somebody's going to turn their back on you? How do you feel about them? What do you say behind their back? But Jesus knows they're all going to take off and run and flee and leave him all alone. And he loved. It's amazing. He knew that even Peter would say, I don't know the man. I do not know the man. I swear I have never met a man named Jesus. And he loved Peter. He knew that they had selfish desire. Oh, can I sit at the right side? Can I sit at the left side? Are you, are, you know, can, it, it's all about me. Even in their selfishness, even in their self-seated desire to elevate themselves, Jesus loved. He knew that they would doubt him. 
without his resurrection. They're not waiting in front of the tomb for the stone to roll away. They went fishing. They would doubt his resurrection. He's told them over and over and over, the Son of Man must suffer many things and after three days rise from the dead. And they doubt it. If they didn't doubt it, they'd have been there waiting for the stone to move and that way they could say hello as soon as he come out of the grave. And even when they were told he was resurrected, they didn't believe it. He knew that they would doubt him. And he loved. He knew that he was crossing over out of this world. You ever been around a group of people and uh, you decide you don't like them? Let's just put it in a job situation. In a job situation, you don't like nobody at your work. And then you know that you're getting a transfer to another place with new people. What's your attitude about those people you're leaving that you don't have to deal with anymore? Man, I'm glad I don't have to look at you no more. Jesus knows he's crossing over to the other side, but yet he loved. He didn't abandon. I know I'm crossing over, but his love is not negated in the slightest degree. He knew he was going home. He's going to be with his father. He's going to be in the perfect glories of heaven. And all the seraphim, Daniel says 10,000 upon 10,000 upon 10,000, all singing holy, holy, holy. Jesus is going to be home. But he loved. He's loved. He's kept pouring out love for those disciples there in this passage. Yet he loved. John 13, verse 1, Jesus loved them. The question is, is who did he love? If you look in the center of the text, he is loving, he loved, having loved his own. It makes it specific. It makes it clear. It's undeniable in its application. He loved his own. By implication, some are not his own. But everyone that is his own, he's loved them. Having loved his own. Who are his own? In this passage, it's these 11 disciples. It's certainly not Judas, because Judas is going to hell after he commits suicide. You know it's not him, but it's, it's those who have repented, those who have believed, those who would follow him. That's his own. And he has a special, unique love for them. And that love that is shared by them is not shared by Esau. It's not shared by Judas. It's not shared by Pharaoh. It's not shared by Demas. It's not shared by the lost pagan world who rejects him as the Savior. It is only applied to his own. Exclusive. You want the Greek word? Exclusive property of someone. One's own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. He has purchased you through redemption, and he loves his own. Look, child, listen this morning. No matter what happens in your life, if you are you today, tomorrow, and unto eternity, he always loves his own. His own. He uses this in reference to his relationship to his father in John 5, 18. He was even calling God his own father. The exclusion of everything else. I have one father and I'm in perfect harmony with him. That's the way this word is used. His own children. This word implies particular, individual, and exclusive application. Jesus loves his own. 
Now, I know people wrestle with stuff like this, and they say, well, I thought Jesus loved everybody. I, I, I understand all that. But look, at least think through. If humanity can pull this off, then why should it be so difficult for us to understand that Jesus can pull it off? Let's just be clear. I love my kids more than I love your kids. I'm a fallen, depraved individual, but it's just the way it is. I love Joshua and Lydia a lot more than I love any of your kids. Because they're mine. They're my own. I love my spouse more than your spouse. Praise the Lord. It's a unique, specific love, right? If humanity can pull this off, why do we stagger at the thought that Jesus loves his own in a specific, particular, elective type of way that is eternal? He's a good father. He knows how to love his own children, but some are not his. And maybe a general love for sure, and we could preach general love on another occasion. We could do Psalm 19, but that's not what we're preaching here. This is John 13, 1, and the text says he loved his own. Well, how did he love them? I'll give you five ways. It's not exhaustive, but I'll give you five ways that he loved them. By implication, everyone who is in a saving relationship with Christ. Number one, unconditionally. There is no condition. Now, by the way, this is not going to be five points of Calvinism, in case you went there when I said five. That's, that's not it. And I said unconditional, and you thought, he can't even spell tulip. It's, no, not that. <laughs> unconditional. There is no condition met by these disciples to gain his love. He just loved them because he jolly well wanted to. He just bestowed his love on them and called them by name to himself. There's no condition met. As a matter of fact, he would say to these same men, you did not choose me. Let's get that clear. You did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Let's make it clear. He set his love on them by elective choice. Or you could take Romans 5, 8. It's a blessedly good verse. But God shows his love for us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much more can you understand of love? He gave his life while you were in the midst of your depravity. So unconditionally is how he loved them. Number two, he loved them eternally. He loved them before the cross as seen in washing their feet. And he loved them after the cross as seen in sending the Holy Spirit to be their comforter until the end. And he says something like this in John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. He says, Jesus says, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. What a love. Or John 14, 3, you know well, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Why would he come again? Because I'm going to take you to myself. Why? That where I am, you may be also. That's love. I want you to spend eternity with me. He loved them, securing their redemption, going to heaven, preparing a place, promising a return to bring them to himself because I want you with me. Love wants you with me. So it works, and Jesus does whatever's necessary to bring that about. It's eternal. It's also exemplary. His words and his actions are a constant proof of his love for them. 
His preaching, his living, set an unmistakable example of his care for their souls. In every moment, he's unfolding truth, explaining the parables, applying them, feeding their souls, preparing them for the next day, telling them about the future. Why? He loves them. And he's doing everything necessary to equip them for what they must face. He also loved them pastorally, did he not? Our text says in three different locations that Jesus is the good pastor. Jesus is the great pastor. Jesus is the chief pastor. And this pastor who loved them provided for them, he protected them, and he possessed eternity. He loved them. He never bailed on them, ever. And then I would also say he loved them husbandly. He proved his love for his bride. How? By laying his life down for her. First John, not John, but First John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's how we know. And so he loved them husbandly. He did everything necessary to secure his bride. Well, that's how he loved them. But I have really good news if you want to receive it. Where did he love them? In the world. Right here in the midst of the world in which we live. It says that in our text. Having loved his own who were in the world. So I love you when you get home. I'm, he loves them right now in the midst of their world. In a world in which they are going to be martyred, their blood is going to be poured out, they'll be crucified upside down, they'll be exiled on the Isle of Patmos, they're going to be hated by everybody around them. And in the midst of a fallen, depraved black world, Jesus loved them through the midst of it all. Not in another place. Think about it for your own application. He loves you as a child of God right now in this world. I hear it every day. Sometimes I just want to escape. I had birds like the wings of a dove. I'd fly away, the psalm says. I want to fly away sometimes. There's homosexuality. There's lawlessness. There's politics. There's Democrats. There's all this stuff going on. And you got all these fights and all these guns and all this stuff. Gender crisis and transgenders. Homosexuality. All this stuff is going on in the midst of this world. I know this. He loves me. He loves me right now in this world in which I live. In all the blackness around me, babies being murdered by the millions, and in the midst of it, He loves His own every day. Every morning you wake up, you are loved. If you're in Christ, every morning you wake up, you're loved by the King of glory. Every day, every night when you lay down, He gives His beloved sleep. He watches over their soul. He cares for them. He loves you. What a Savior. Right here in the world, He loves us. He loved them in the midst of a world that hated Him and hated them. I would say to you that all those adopted into the family of God can expect the same type of love while you live in this world. you got to get it. John applies it this way in 1 John 3.1. He says what? See what kind of love the Father has for us. Do you see it? Do you experience this love that He has for us, that He's given to us, that we, 
A bunch of depraved rebels that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Could you get an identity? You don't need uh, Dr. Phil. You certainly don't need Oprah. You don't need any psychological junk that's in the world. You want an identity? Why don't you try reading the Bible? The Father loves you. He's adopted you. You're his own. Right now, you're a child of God. I don't have to go back and say, oh, my daddy did this when I was two, and my mama did this when I was 12, and then I had this experience at school where somebody bullied me. Hogwash! I'm a child of the living God, and he loves me. He proved it on Calvary Street. He's resurrected from the dead. He's preparing a place for me in glory, and that's my identity. I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. I'm redeemed. I'm adopted. I belong to somebody, and I have the greatest father in all of the universe. I am loved. You need to be able to say that because it's true as a Christian. I don't care what color you are. Just go ahead and get all the racial comments out of the way. I don't care if you're black, red, yellow, green. I don't care what color you are or what nation you were born in. If you repent and believe in Christ, you will be adopted into the family of God and you'll be loved eternally like this. You can take your critical race theory and take it to hell, but it ain't coming in this church as long as I'm alive. If you don't know what critical race theory is, praise the Lord. Well, John also says this. I hope it's true of you. 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. God abides in you? Would Paul say, you're the temple of the living God? By this love perfected with us. By this is love perfected with us. So that we we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. No fear of judgment. I'm loved by God. God dwells within me and I'm going to be ushered into the eternal glories because Christ is my righteousness. Okay, that was two points. I don't know what you're thinking, but I hope that you would receive the reality that when Jesus sets his love upon somebody, he that proves it, he exemplifies it, he carries it out unto all of eternity. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, you're not loved. The devil don't love you, the world don't love you, nothing out there loves you. And when the world gets through with you, they'll throw you into hell. I'm inviting you to come to one that would give his love to you and he'd give it to you eternally. Point number three. Jesus loved them to the end. To the end. Let's define a few words, and the definitions all sound the same, but let's define them anyways. In this text, you have the word telos. It's a Greek word, telos. It's only used one time in the Gospel of John here in John 13, 1. He loved them to the end. Telos is end. It's the last part of a process. It's the conclusion, last things. It is the final act in the cosmic drama. So in this whole universe, there's this drama unfolding. It's the last act. It's the curtain call. Everything's done. He loves them till the finality of it all. Then the other word is teleo. It's the verbal form of the same word. It means to complete an activity or process, bring to an end, finish. It is as if you could think about someone running a marathon or a 5K. They actually crossed the line. They finish. They completed the action. 
Now, this is only used twice in the Gospel of John, just two verses apart, John 19, 28, John 19, 30. Think about how the word is used there. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, in order to fulfill the Scriptures, he said, I thirst. The word finished. Everything, Jesus said, everything required for me to be a substitute on the behalf of sinners, everything the law has required, everything my Father has given me to do, it's all finished. And I won't even leave out that one word in the Old Testament in Psalms that says, I thirst. I'll even quote that because I want every single piece to be finished. Jesus didn't lose one thing. Every single thing he set his hand to, he accomplished. Somewhere in your heart today, could you rejoice that you have a Savior that actually does what he says he's going to do? And then John 19.30, the classic verse we love, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. There was an action that was started in the past, and it's emphasized in the present that he has accomplished everything he set forth to do. Hallelujah. What a Savior. There's another Greek word. There's actually probably two more, but I'm going to give you one more in John. It's similar to the first two, just a little bit different. To complete an activity, to bring to an end, to accomplish. Listen closely. Now, this word gets translated, at least in the ESV, it gets translated accomplish rather than end or finished. It gets translated accomplished. Listen to how it's used, John 4, 34. Jesus speaking. I think every reference with this word in John is in a reference to Jesus. But my food, Jesus speaking, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus said, I came here to accomplish the work I was sent to do. Why do we worship him? Because he did accomplish what he was sent to do. You remember the introduction? People say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. It goes on all the time. They never do it. Here, there's one that says, I came to accomplish something, and I'm not leaving town until I accomplish it. Then he says in John 5, 36, But the testimony that I give is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness to me that the Father has sent me. I'm here accomplishing this work. John 17, 4 in the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth. How did Jesus glorify his Father? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Let's learn from Jesus. You want to glorify the Father in heaven? Accomplish what you speak and say you're going to do in accordance with the Word of God. That's what Christ did. And then, special application. That's Jesus and the work accomplishing it. Now, there's another work that's specific and clear. We're not on a side trail here. He loved, he loved them, he loved them to the end. Now, we're working on this word accomplish. Here's how much he loves when it comes to gospel-centeredness in the life of his children, his own. And it's found in John 17, 23. He says, I, Jesus, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected. 
that they may be accomplished, that they may be fulfilled. The love that Christ has for his own is to bring them to perfection, to bring them to accomplishment, to take depraved lost sinners and make them trophies of grace. You know how interesting this is? Peter will tell you, angels are in heaven going, how in the world is he going to pull that off with Drew? How's he going to pull that off with Jay or with Joseph? How in the world is he going to take somebody like Jack and make them perfect? Nobody can do that. But Jesus can. Because he loves them to the end. And whatever it takes to make you perfect, covered in righteousness, before the great triune holy God, Jesus loves you so much, he'll pull it off. What a Savior. That you may be perfected in one. So why? Why would he do that? That the world may know that you sent me and love them, that God loved them even as God loved Jesus. What kind of love did the Father have for the Son? Whatever that is, that's the way you're loved. He, can you, I mean, this, I, it won't fit in my brain. My ears aren't wide enough apart. I need more material to work with. That I look at my Bible, I read my Bible, and I see what God and Jesus and the relationship and the love that is beyond comprehension. And now I'm supposed to come to a verse and say that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. But that's what the verse says. Let, let's, I mean, maybe we should attempt uh, to read it again. And love them even as you loved me. Do you believe that? You think I'm like a crazy man that doesn't know what I'm doing? Do you believe what God's Word says? That He would love them, love His own, just as, even as He loved Christ. It ought to correct your theology a lot because there's a lot of complainers in the church, including the preacher, and we complain about people not loving, not caring, people don't do this, they don't appreciate me, and we do all this nonsense, and we want pity, and we want sorrow, and we've got a Bible here that's telling us about a God there that loves us as much as he loved his own son. Because now, in Christ, we are his children, and he loves all of his children this way, just like he loved his firstborn. Do you believe that? Well, Jack believes it. Before the Feast of Passover and after the Feast of Passover. So I'm going through this verse backwards if you hadn't caught on. But he, how was Jesus' love manifest before the feast? And how was it manifest after the feast? Because the text says, now before the Feast of Passover, Jesus knowing. Before the feast of Passover, his love is manifested clearly by washing their feet, by serving them, by denying himself the place he rightfully possesses and demonstrating the biblical definition of love. You know about Christ. You look at this text. You know what should happen. They should wash his feet. He should sit in the place of honor. And Peter ought to get a towel and he ought to get on his knees and he ought to wash Jesus' feet like Mary did with a perfume. But that's not what happens. What on earth would happen in this room 
if Jesus come down, pulled Wade's boots off and started washing his feet. I'd just cry at the humility of it all. The King of glory washing your feet. Look, you... Muslims are trying to appease Allah. All these foreign religions are trying to make their gods happy with them. I'm trying to figure out how in the world this type of love can be applied to me. And they're trying to do something to gain it. I'm just trying to figure it out how he can have this kind of love and self-sacrifice in order to bless me. After the Feast of Passover... There's a distinct connection between John 13.1 and John 19.30. You can't miss the connection. He loved them before the feast by washing their feet. He loved them after the feast by being nailed to a tree as a substitute. Now look, this is just the way it happens. Before the most difficult time in his life and, the most, and in the most difficult time of his life, he loved them. Just be honest, just for just a second. Let's say on Tuesday at 2 o'clock, you're having heart surgery, and it's a five-hour surgery you're going to be under. They're going to do open-heart surgery. They're going to do a quadruple bypass, and, and all of this is coming up on Tuesday. This Tuesday, it's happening to you. They're going to put you under. They're going to cut your chest open. They're going to do all this work on your heart. They're going to sew you up, and they hope that it works and you don't die. In the period between now and Tuesday, who are you thinking about? I'm thinking about me. I'm about to have surgery. Pray for me. Encourage me. Love me. Help me. You don't understand what I'm facing. Please have some sympathy for me. There, there is no situation that exceeds in difficulty what Jesus is about to face. And in this situation, he says, I love them to the end. I love them by washing their feet. I love them by being nailed to a tree. But make no mistake about it, I love my own. That's what Jesus does. Right at the most difficult hour, everybody abandons. And all this pressure comes. And he's being squeezed like a sponge. And the only thing that comes out is love. For them. After the resurrection, he still loves them. He spent 40 days with them. He taught them, ate and drank with them, instructs them of what the future holds for them. He ascends in their very presence and assures them that he will return. But until he does, he gives them the spirit of the living God to comfort them every day of their life. And that's true for every believer in the room. We receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to comfort us, to guide us, to seal us until the day of redemption. The sermon really only has one point. Jesus loved them to the end. The implication for all Christianity is that the way he loves, that this is the way he loves all of his children. He loves his own, even though they fail. Jack had confessed a few things in his testimony. He still loves Jack. Just like he did before Jack messed up, or before I messed up, or before you messed up. His love isn't altered by my inconsistencies. He loves them unconditionally. He loves them eternally. He loves them exemplarily. He loves them pastorally. He loves them husbandly. And most importantly, he loves you to the end. One final question. The end of what? Eternity is the answer. When's that? I don't know. It's a long time. It's on the other side of Pluto, I can tell you that. There's a song, you know it well. It's entitled, The Love of God. 
Frederick M. Lehman, born in Germany, four years old. He moved to the United States and lived in California. So he's a German-born Christian. He was saved when he was 11 years old. He was working in a citrus plant, citrus packing plant, lemons and oranges. He sat on an empty fruit crate with a stubby pencil and jotted down a few words as he thought on the love of God in Pasadena, California. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The wandering child is reconciled by God's beloved Son. The aching soul again made whole and priceless pardon won. When ancient times shall pass away and human thrones and kingdoms fall, when those who hear refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love is so sure shall still endure All measureless and strong, grace will resound the whole earth round, the saints' and angels' song. And that's where he stopped. But in that day and age, 1917, you got to have three stanzas to make a song because that was the custom of the day. And he couldn't figure out what to write for the third stanza of the song. And lo and behold, he ran across an insane asylum. And in this insane asylum, on the wall of a room were written some words. Now, when he got these words, he thought that this insane guy must have wrote them on the wall, which he did. But that wasn't the original source. The original source was the 11th century by a German poet. I don't know how it got to the insane asylum, but this is the third stanza that we all know and love. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, Were every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. My last question is just simple. Do you believe that Jesus loves you like this to the end? Oh, that you would receive this type of love that is eternal, eternal, impeccable, a love like no one on earth can give you, but a love that will last through all of eternity. Kevin.